Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What's going on, guys? Before we get into today's podcast episode, I wanted to give you a quick update on the Ready Eddy membership program. To this point, we've grown to have thousands of products from up and coming startups and small businesses in the outdoor travel and lifestyle space on the platform. You can save up to 50% off all of these products, anything from skis to jackets to food bars to supplements. Anything you could think of to support your outdoor activities is on the platform from small up and coming brands. It's a great opportunity to support small businesses while also discovering brands that you've never heard of. You can show off the new gear to your friends and also save a ton while doing it. If you're interested in checking it out, head over to readyeddy.com members to get your first month free. What is going on, Red Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host. On today's episode, I am sitting down with one of the owners and CEO of Zoic, Paul Wyant. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Hey, Josh. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Definitely. All right. So for Zoic, for, for people who may not be aware of Zoic, how would you best describe it to them? Zoic is a relaxed fit cycling clothing company. So we make primarily mountain biking clothing, but really just loose fit technical performance clothing for anybody who wants to be comfortable and on the bike and not wear spandex for uh, their cycling activities. So that's the origin of the brand. And that's the, the mantra that we stay true to today. That's awesome. Now let's talk about, I guess, your history and the history of Zoic's. I know Zoic's been around for 25 years. You've been involved for a little over a decade. How can you kind of walk me through the origin story? Yes, definitely. Uh, so a couple guys were good buddies in San Francisco and riding together and you know, mountain biking had been a, a sport for 10, 15 years at the time. And they still saw everybody wearing spandex like the uh, the road cyclists and they saw an opportunity to, but they were typically putting cargo shorts over their spandex shorts and right. said, well, we see an opportunity to make a, a short that works specifically for mountain biking that is baggy like this and has a padded liner in it instead of the spandex, the separate spandex short. So they started creating that product uh, back in 94. And that's really what the, the, brand identity grew from is this multifunctional clothing that looks fairly normal, even though you're out riding a bike. Right. Uh, that's smart. Um, so tell me, how, how did you get involved with Zoic? Yeah. So Zoic grew for several years and was successful in creating this category. And then through some ownership changes, kind of stumbled, and I got involved through a partnership. I was running a clothing company that had multiple lines of business, and we started working with uh, Zoic and a sister brand to uh, keep them alive and, and kind of nurture them and cultivate them. And then through the course of several years, uh, the owners of the brand were disinvesting in the Zoic brand and the brand manager and I saw an opportunity to resuscitate it. And so then we took control of it directly and have been nurturing it and then building it since that time. That's interesting. It's a, it's something that I, um, 
whenever I interview someone who has sort of a similar um, way of getting involved with a business, you, whenever you think about someone like running and operating a business, you kind of think of the traditional like founder sort of process. But there really are a lot of businesses that kind of go through this sort of like multi-step um, sort of uh, existence, right? And they're not necessarily like these giant companies. Like Zoic's been around for 25 years and it obviously has had a good amount of success, but by no means is it like a huge business, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. There have definitely been ups and downs. It's had significant wins along the way and we've, you know, have our successes, but it's a very uh, uh, fragmented industry and uh, a lot of brands out there making mountain bike specific clothing, cycling clothing in general. Uh, there's a lot of challenges for our business and, and any startup business or, you know, there are certainly elements of a startup business and try to trying to rebuild this brand as well. Um, but you have the different challenge of instead of having to try to pioneer some identity and connection for it, you have to try to repair some of the relationships that maybe got the brand its initial success. Um, and so we had some challenges with that as well along the way. Definitely. Now, now let's talk about like your your past and, and upbringing. Where did you grow up? And I assume you were an avid mountain biker, or at least got into it at some point in your life. And what really led you to getting into this sort of uh, business? Uh, so uh, growing up, moved around a little bit. Um, I wasn't a, an early mountain biker per se, but I was. I had a mountain bike in the late '80s, and uh, was uh, became more of an avid mountain biker when I moved to Los Angeles and was in business school in the mid '90s. And it was also at that time that I kind of moved from looking at. Uh, I, I started in accounting and finance and was looking at, at uh, opportunities in investment banking or kind of being a, an evaluator of businesses. And it was through business school that I found my passion to really be an operator of a business. So I got into a startup coming out of business school uh, that went through its trials and tribulations. I actually uh, then went to work th with uh, my father, who was running an apparel company here in San Diego. And there, that's what got me into the apparel business. And so I started running different apparel lines and helping to build that business and looking at branded businesses. And that's what brought me the opportunity to work with the owners of Zoo and Zoic. Um, and Zoo being a triathlon brand and Zoic being the, the mountain bike brand. And, uh, and so I was looking for branded businesses for our company to get involved with because we'd always been a private label supplier to the apparel industry and to a lot of retailers. And I saw a need to have more branded businesses. And so being a customer of the Zoic business, it was familiar to me. And so, you know, before I was an owner, I was the customer. So it's that old story. And, uh, and that's <laughs> kind of grown from, from that to, uh, to be now my, uh, you know, my primary, uh, operating business. That's really awesome. And I'm sure it's looking back at it, you're kind of um, surprised sort of how things go, right? Like I'm sure when you first got into uh, starting work, did you think you were going to end up running a mountain bike business? No, definitely not. Um, I certainly <laughs> knew that I wanted to be doing something that I enjoyed and was passionate about, as was right, uh, of course. true from the the uh, the interest in shifting to running a business as opposed to just investing or crunching numbers for a business, and 
And yeah, I, so I, but I certainly wasn't seeing myself as an apparel manufacturer or apparel designer and, or a, an apparel company executive. That was my dad. That wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny how that happens over time. Yeah. Um, so you take over the business, you start working to really revive the brand and grow it. What, what were those steps like that process? Did you kind of have a roadmap when you made the decision to, to do this or did you kind of come into the role and kind of like figure it out as you went? There was definitely a roadmap, and I have to attribute the the core of that roadmap to my partner Eric, who had worked with the founders of Zoic and knew the DNA of the brand, had been around in the early days of the brand, and so carried a lot of that forward into our reincarnation of it, as as well as just having the relationships. He was had been responsible for sales, had the relationships with a lot of the bike dealers and was very familiar with how the brand was perceived in the market and had been received and where we had found success in the past. And so we look to revisit those past successes, but yet also design new product and more interesting product that was going to capture the attention of consumers in the current day, because we couldn't just come out with the same short that, that got Zoic on the map in 94. Uh, and so uh, we worked together on some of those product ideas and some of that uh, uh, organizational roadmap, um, but he, and more to the point, executed it in the early days because it was very much a, an incubator stage kind of business, and I was just giving it part-time, and it wasn't until we had worked on it for a few years together uh, that I turned my attention to it full-time um, because he had gotten to it, gotten it back to a point that it was a sustainable business that that could stand on its own with its own operations and with us both uh, working full time within the business. Yeah, for sure. And that always takes time. People always think it's an overnight success. <laughs> they don't realize how many how many years go into really getting it to that point where it can employ people, including its founders. <laughs> right. Yeah people running it um okay and this was in the early 2000s or no i guess this was late 2000s yeah so this would have been around 2009 uh 2010 that uh, and and during this point were you guys doing b to uh direct to consumer were you getting in retail shops like what was your sort of like strategy yeah so distribution for the brand uh has always been through bike dealers but then there's always been a component of it that's been direct to consumer so if you go back through the wayback machine on google if you're at all familiar with that you'll see zoic websites from like 96 or 97 so zoic always sold to consumers through the website um mountain bikers are scattered all across the country and are often in places that don't have a bike shop right nearby um, especially in mountain towns and and some other right. more remote locations. So there was always a, a demand for some direct purchasing of uh, Zoic products. So we've always had a direct presence. And certainly that's evolved. When we got the brand uh, rebuilt in the late 2000s, it was largely on the back of the retail channel, though. It was selling to uh, Performance Bike and REI and shops like Poison Spider and Chili Pepper in Moab and Paragon Sports in New York and uh, shops that were viewed as uh, kind of marquee mountain bike 
shops that uh, that would get us back in the presence of the consumer's mind. And then as it evolved, uh, the marketplace evolved. More e-commerce was certainly exploding in the late 2000s. And uh, our, so our website started to grow. We had more e-commerce players coming to us. We got on to backcountry.com, who is now a, a very large distributor of ours. Um, we got approached by Amazon and we sell on Amazon now. Um, so our distribution has definitely, definitely changed. Uh, performance bike went bankrupt last year. So that channel of distribution is gone, but we're still in a lot of independent bike dealers around the country and we gladly support them and work closely with them. We have a staff person who's dedicated to that channel. We have independent reps who sell through that channel. And that was one of the challenges that we had getting back into the marketplace was finding representation because it's still uh, largely built on a, a one-to-one relationship with those bike stores. And with for that, you need a sales rep. And to have a sales rep, uh, they've got to have multiple lines. And so we've got to be part of a bag of tricks that they pull out when they visit these bike shops. And we've got to have a compelling enough product that they're going to want to talk about it in and amongst the multiple brands and products that they're representing and wanting to to sell to that shop on any given visit. That, that kind of brings up a, my next question, um, which obviously is, is the product, like you're saying, has to be high quality and different, right, in some regards from the competitors. So I, I guess what I, in the revamp of the business, what did you guys do or did you really do anything that different um, in sort of the new line that really helped you differentiate yourself from competitors? Yeah, well, certainly we... Uh, we looked at performance fabrics and uh, brought in new performance fabrics to our product, lighter weight, more stretch. Um, we also designed a very iconic short that has now been our bestseller for nine years, the men's ether short uh, with integrated ventilation panels and uh, taped zippers. Uh, the taped zippers were common on ski wear, but nobody had seen them in uh, right, right. casual, you know, everyday apparel. Uh, we put them on pockets for the cargo pockets of our shorts. We also made, um, our, we've always made cargo pocket shorts. So you have places to stash stuff because you didn't always have a camelback and not everybody always wants to ride with a camelback. And then if you're as a functional short for wearing around town or hiking or other activities, it's great to have those pockets. So we, uh, we made this a cargo short, but it wasn't an, as obvious a cargo short because it was a flat finished pocket. It didn't like billow out. And so it was streamlined, wouldn't get uh, baggy in the wind and make as much noise. And and then we also designed the pockets so that when you access the pocket, it's at an angle when you're pe- in your pedal stroke. So as you lift your leg, then you reach into the pocket and you're not unzipping a pocket that everything spills out the back of because it's designed for standing as opposed to sitting on a bike. Right. So, right. Uh, so we did some of those things that really, that weren't part of the brand and weren't part of the product offering of the brand. They were part of the, the aesthetic of the brand in terms of functionality. Um, but we certainly modernized it and, uh, and introduced this short that has now become, a, a, a quite a, a prominent part of our line. And, uh, has dictated some of the style in the market because we see competitors. We've seen 
knockoffs of it from anywhere from uh, other uh, prominent brands in the space in the U.S. to uh, cheaper Chinese imports trying to steal our, our business on Amazon. So it's uh, it's definitely um, you know, the case that uh, imita- imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, if I can stutter through that. But uh, it's, uh, it's also a challenge for our business because it's uh, a competitive space. And if somebody can, can take our idea and try to mimic it and knock off uh, 15 or 20 bucks in price to get it to the consumer. It's a challenge for us to stay relevant to that consumer. Definitely. And that, that also leads me to my next question of sort of the manufacturing process. Where do you, where do you guys make all of your product and how do you, um, keep tabs on making sure that the quality really meets your standards? And then like you were saying with the price point and staying competitive, um, you know, with the price that you offer on your products. Yeah, so our uh, our product is uh, has been made to, all across the globe, really. But our primary products are come from a supplier in China. So the shorts and some of our jerseys uh, come from a few suppliers in China. And with those suppliers, we have deep seated relationships. We've been producing. Uh, we're now working with a company who was once a subcontractor to our primary. Uh, factory that went out of business due to a, a personal issue of the owner. Um, and so we had a strong enough relationship with through our supply chain and visibility through our ch- supply chain that we were able to then transition to a subcontractor. So we've had that visibility and that's what helps us control the quality, know what product we're getting uh, from our sources of supply and to be on the ground making uh, revisions, making improvements as new product gets developed. So uh, our staff will make a trip overseas to to work with the factory, work with developers to see the product on the line getting produced. Um, We get visits from our suppliers as well here in the States. So it's a a very integrative relationship that helps produce that quality that we have. And that's allowed us to maintain our pricing. So on our best-selling shorts, we've had an $80 price point for um, uh, for seven years now. And uh, that's, that's a challenge to maintain in the economic environment w- that we're in, where you know now we're absorbing uh, uh, duties and tariffs and um, and uh, and some of those other issues that are. Uh, tangential to the conversation we're having here, but the um, the the focus of of our manufacturing is always on quality and always on finding the best price to do offer the best product. And with that, we're able to provide a, a great value to the consumer at a very competitive price point uh, that's typically within a sixty to ninety dollar range, whereas. Uh, there are a lot of products out there in uh, you know 100 plus, 150, 200 dollar plus range that may not offer even the same benefits that our product does. Right, that's a really good point. Now, over the last 10 years, what would you say has been one of the hardest point parts about building the business? Oh, one of the hardest parts of building the business is financing getting the money to do the things you want to do because it, you want to do it, but if you haven't sold it yet, you don't 
you've got to sell a story of how you're going to do it and then get the people to put the money behind it. And whether those people are your family and friends or a banker who's going to make a loan or uh, a speculative investor who's going to place equity in your company or uh, any, you know, there's a number of different sources where you can get the financing. And then as your business grows, you continue to hit those challenges of now you need more inventory. So you need more money to maintain, to produce that inventory to begin with, because factories in China and India and Vietnam and elsewhere want deposits ahead of time to make the product. And so you've got, a, a, you've got to front run your sales with enough money to get you the product to even make the sale and then to advertise it and to get the word out and to have the staff to service it and ship it and all of those things. So, yeah, I would definitely say that uh, that money feeds the beast. Uh, hearing you say that stresses me out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, all the manufacturing businesses that I interview, they all say very similarly that it's like it's um it's a difficult thing to figure out because like you're saying, A, you got to find the money if you don't already have it from past sales. And then B, you got to hope that you guessed right, whether you're too high or too low, right? I guess it's a better problem to guess wrong in the sense of having not enough because at least you sold it all. Right. But then you're still like, well, now I'm not making any money because we don't have anything to sell. And it could be like November 15th, you know what I mean? Or something like that, for like the holiday rush. Right. Or something which is another scary situation to be in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And actually, uh, with that, uh, in terms of guessing right on quantities, you also have to guess right and make a bet based on what the factory is telling you they can produce because the factory has their minimums. And so you've got to only make a bet if you're feeling strong enough that you're going to make sell enough to meet that factory minimum. And factories are getting smarter with their production and trying to get more efficient. So they're less and less willing these days to produce small batch quantities. So it makes it harder sometimes to introduce new products. But when we do introduce a new product, we do have to make a commitment to it and be in the marketplace quickly with it to try to get some results and know that we bet right and, and maximize that return on that investment. Yeah, sounds stressful. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, the nature of the beast with uh, building businesses. Um, what would you say has been one of your biggest mistakes um, being sort of at the helm uh, well, my biggest mistake uh, actually came in the business that I was running that led me into Zoic, which was, uh, as I said, we were trying to shift from a private label business to a branded business, and we did not move that quickly enough. And then uh, within the economic environment of the late 2000s, the meltdown that occurred then, our private label businesses weren't sustaining high enough margins. We couldn't uh, we didn't have brands that consumers related to, so they didn't have intrinsic value that was going to sustain through a downturn. And we lost all of that business. So I went from running a $100 million company to uh, having a mountain bike clothing lifestyle brand that uh, I was setting up shop around um, in the over the course of the summer of 2009. So yes, yeah, a 10-year anniversary of that transition. and But it was a it was an enlightening lifestyle transition that I made to be focused on all aspects of this business 
and to help build this business up to where it is today. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that. But I have made mistakes within this business in the last 10 years as well. Um, and, you know, whether it's short sightedness regarding product or missing an opportunity to try to uh, control uh, the, the marketplace and control the, uh, the product conversation uh, with what we're doing versus letting competitors in, I would say, you know, that's one of my biggest, uh, what I look to as a biggest, a big failure in our business is how other competitors have come in and taken a share of this market, which, you know, speaks to the opportunity that exists here, but would we have, uh, done it differently to, uh, keep those customers coming to us, keep those dealers working with us and own more of that market today than we, uh, than we do. And then we had 10 years ago as it's grown, I would, uh, yeah, I'd say that's, that's been a big mistake within this business. It's just that it's been, uh, the competitive challenge has been bigger than, than we may have even anticipated at the time because of some of the brands that have come in and, and tried to take a chunk out of us. And, we fought a few of them off, like the North Face, but others like Traley Designs have moved over from Moto and uh, kind of come to, to own a big chunk of uh, the mountain bike clothing space. Uh, there are still others that keep trying to, to get into the market and keep dabbling in it, but uh, we have a strong position and we're going to continue to fight for that and defend that and continue to serve, more, most importantly, serve the consumer a product that allows them to enjoy the sport of mountain biking and gives them a product that they can uh, find multiple uh, uses for and find great value in at, at a price that they are comfortable paying and not make them pay through the nose for it. So, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, just hearing you talk about it, all the different challenges that you face when starting a business, this, this is something I've actually been thinking about recently. A lot of people sort of assume that, um, you know, there. Once you're, you have a successful business. It's like done, right? The book is closed. <laughs> it's been a success. They don't realize that it could easily fall apart. <laughs> like the either the economic environment changes or whatever. You know, there's a million different things that could happen, and all of a sudden, like you, like what happened to you in 2009. All of a sudden, your business is gone, and it it's just goes to show that like you're constantly having to um, improve, make changes, and sort of adapt with whatever's changing. And that is equally as hard as starting the business to begin with. Yes, absolutely. And some of those things start to impact you in different ways as you get scale um, that didn't matter when you were smaller. So, you know, we're, we're renting a larger space now, and so we've got to keep that space filled or we've got to change this, how we're filling our fulfilling our orders and, and how we're housing our staff and, um, and then, uh, issues that come out of left field, like the, the latest tariffs you know, that you don't anticipate. And right, what, right. so whether it's the government or whether it's a competitor or whether it's your supplier, um, like I said, uh, several years ago, we had our supplier approach us and say, listen, for personal reasons, my wife passed away and I need to exit this business because I need to take care for my young children. And uh, who's going to fault him for making that choice? And we just had to uh, buckle down and look for what our options were for maintaining the quality and trying to to avoid any hiccup in our business uh, while we you know, 
continued to, you know, expressed our concern for him and, and allowed him to, to, uh, to make his choice. And so fortunately he was willing to put this piece together to say, well, this subcontractor, that contractor that I've worked with, with your product is, uh, you know, approaches business the same way I do. We met with him. We transitioned an employee or two over from the other, uh, the initial supplier, and we wound up having a seamless transition and it's just continued to grow and, and be a, a great relationship for us. So what could be problems for you can, can be managed into opportunities and, uh, yeah, others can can cause you a heartburn and and heartache. So. <laughs> this is the nature of the beast. Um, so, what advice would you give to someone that wanted to uh, start a business, whether it was in the outdoor space or really just a business in general? I would say challenge your assumptions and do that by immersing yourself in the market that you're looking to uh, that you're looking to target and so that you hear how customers are talking about the problem that you think you're solving and how, if there are other, uh, other levels of distribution within it, if there's a dealer, if there's a service professional who's got to be involved in the sale, getting their insight into what the opportunity is or what the problem is so that, uh, you don't go in with those blinders on saying, I know this is, the right way to do this and nobody's done it before because somebody has probably tried to do it before. Maybe you've got a better way to do it, but don't assume that it's never been tried. Um, just like when Zoic started out, we were the first to create mountain bike clothing, but there were several other brands that did the same thing at the same time in other parts of the country. Other people were thinking of the same idea. We just happened to do it in San Francisco. Other people did it in LA or North Carolina or wherever these other brands emerged from, it was all <laughs> kind of the zeitgeist. And, um, and so you may not be the first to market, but you may have a great idea. You just have to have to vet it and have, and that only gives you greater confidence that you're headed down the right path. For sure. Now, where do you see Zoic going in the next year, five years, 10 years down the road? Uh, we will continue to uh, design uh, technical comfort clothing for cycling, for mountain biking specifically, but also for any cycling uh, activity. Uh, you know, people are getting on bikes in a lot of different ways these days, whether they're jumping on an electric cruiser or they're uh, jumping on a spin bike in the gym. Um, so there may be opportunities for us to extend our products, uh, to some of these other, uh, use cases. Um, you know, some of our success in recent years, a lot of our success has come from the diversity that we now offer in the liners, the padded liners that we offer. So not just the shorts that you can wear everywhere, but the the specific functional comfort garment that you're wearing underneath to be uh, satisfied in the bike saddle. Um, we offer a variety of liners that give you anywhere from thin and soft to thicker and firm support in the saddle. And now we're adding features for guys like a fly and for men and women with pockets. And um, so it's becoming a, more of a utility product that may cross over into some of those other use cases for cyclists in general. 
And then uh, our product in general has become more versatile. And as more people have uh, incorporated technical performance fabrics and garments in general into their everyday life, they're more comfortable wearing it. They see more value in having those features. There's more opportunity for our brand to speak to those consumers and to show how the versatility that we have for a sport-specific use is also great for uh, an everyday use. That's awesome. I'm really excited to see all the things that you guys do uh, uh, in the next couple of years with uh, with Zoic. And I want to thank you, Paul, for taking the time to come on the podcast and share your story and share the story of, of Zoic and all the trials and tribulations that you guys have gone through and really all the great things that you guys uh, have been creating and um, for anyone listening to this podcast episode before, before October 15th, you can actually enter to win a bunch of product from Zoic along with a bunch of other bike brands. Um, so just head over to readyeddy.com for your chance to win. And with that, Paul, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed this. Josh, I've enjoyed the conversation and appreciate the opportunity you've given me. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Eddy Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.